Just Life, a programme from Radio Maria England. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Just Life. This morning, we are live here from the Cambridge studio, and we're joined by Roy Peachy. Good morning, Roy. Morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming back on Radio Maria. This is not Roy's first time on the radio. He featured on our programme Sport and Faith, and where he spoke about his novel The Race, uh, which focused on Eric Liddell, the Olympic winner in 1924, who refused to run on a Sunday in the 100 metre final and instead won the 400 metres. So we're welcome back to Radio Maria. And Roy, he's authored other books. He is um, a husband, a father and a writer and a teacher. And most recently, he's written a book, a little book of British saints. And his next children's novel is called Meg Mog and Gog the Dog, which focuses on the stories of Britain. And that's what he's going to be talking to us about today. And uh, what during this very, during this official period of, of mourning for Queen Elizabeth II and uh a rather patriotic time. It couldn't be more appropriate that you're here with us today to talk about stories of Britain. So thank you so much. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Yes, it, it struck me last week that when Queen Elizabeth died, the natural response was to tell stories, stories about her life and reign. Some of those stories were funny, some were moving, and they all contributed to a larger story, the, the story of the country she ruled. But now we're in a situation where Charles III is king. And so new questions are being asked. What sort of king will he be? What sort of place will Britain become during his reign? Only time and stories will tell. So it does seem an appropriate time then to think about the stories of Britain, for it is the stories that we have told and sometimes the stories we have forgotten that have forged our island's nations. And it strikes me that history and stories belong together. In fact, in many languages, story and history are the same word. And we often experience history and stories as flip sides of the same coin. One of my favourite books in primary school, for example, was Stories of the Ancient Britons by Marjorie Morris a book which interspersed history with stories. Another was My Favourite Escape Stories, edited by Major Pat Reed, a remarkable man who escaped from Colditz himself. So it was stories about Colditz, but also stories about Charles I's attempted escape from the Tower of, uh, from Carisbrook Castle, rather, on the Isle of Wight, and Father John Gerard's successful escape from the Tower of London, during the reign of Elizabeth I. But the merging of stories and history reached a new level when I started secondary school. At the age of 11, we were taught about the Roman invasions of Britain. I loved those lessons. The Catavalloni, the elephants, the battles. It was years later that our teachers admitted, rather sheepishly, that they'd got their information from I. Claudius and Claudius the God by Robert Graves, and that he'd made most of it up. 
not that those fictions did me any harm. A few years later, I was studying history at university. And I think the reason those stories didn't damage my historical prospects is because stories really matter. They teach and entertain. They teach because they entertain. So by extension, we can truly say that if we want to understand our country and its history, we need the stories of Britain. But why stories plural? One of the most popular history books for children when I was growing up was R.J. Unstead's The Story of Britain, Story Singular. These days, we are much more aware that history is contested. There isn't just one story. There are many stories. History isn't a single thread. It's a multicolored tapestry. A tapestry composed of folk tales, like the ones collected by Joseph Jacobs, or more recently by Kevin Crossley Holland. A historical tapestry made up of books like Geoffrey of Monmouth's The History of the Kings of Britain, or Geraldine McCorkran's Britannia, 100 Great Stories from British History. A tapestry of stories that seem to grow from the British soil itself. I'm thinking here of The Hobbit, The Wind in the Willows, The Borrowers, and Stig of the Dump. The stories of Britain are both multilingual and multinational. The Arthurian myth is as much French as it is British, as much Welsh and Irish as it is English. We need Le Mort d'Arthur, which C.S. Lewis once called a sacred and central possession of all who possess the, sorry, I'll read that again, a sacred and central possession of all who speak the English tongue. But we also need the Mabinogion and the tales of the elders of Ireland and Waterbower's Scotty Chronicon. Whatever the stories of Britain are, they're never monolingual. They were never insular. But it's also true that the stories of Britain have been widely forgotten. This isn't simply the fault of our modern education system. It's not a problem we can blame entirely on technology. R.M. Wilson wrote a book called The Lost Literature of Medieval England many years ago. Some of the greatest tales have been forgotten for hundreds of years. And in fact, it is this sense of loss that underlies Tolkien's entire life's work. Part of his motivation in writing The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion was to give England its mythology back, to recover the fragments and piece them together again. We now accept elves and orcs and ents as part of our national story, but forget the painstaking work Tolkien did over many years to recreate them from the little that has remained of old English literature. As Tom Shippey points out in his wonderful book, The Roads to Middle-earth, England must be the most demythologized country in Europe, partly as a result of 1066, which led to near total suppression of native English belief, partly as a result of the early Industrial Revolution, which led to the extinction of what remained. And Tolkien himself wrote in one of his letters that, I was from early days grieved by the poverty of my own beloved country. It had no stories of its own bound up with its tongue and soil, not of the quality that I sought and found in legends of other lands. And so he made a decision. He said this, 
I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story. The larger founded on the lesser in contact with the earth, the lesser drawing splendor from the vast backcloths, which I could dedicate simply to, to England, to my country. Now he came to think this ambition absurd, his words, but of course, what he eventually created helped revive and extend the national stories in ways which would have seemed unimaginable when he began his great task. And he wasn't alone. One of my favourite C.S. Lewis books is That Hideous Strength, which brings Merlin back into the modern world. We cannot simply ignore the old stories, Lewis suggested. Like Merlin and Arthur, they may appear to be dead and buried, but they're simply biding their time, waiting to burst out again when we most need them. So I don't think we need to beat ourselves up about the fact that children no longer know the stories of Britain as well as maybe they did in the past. Let's look at ways of retelling them instead. The books of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are a great place to start, but we might also want to look at books like Alan Garner's Treacle Walker, which has just been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and Amy Jeff's Storyland, a new mythology of, it, of, of Britain. And as you mentioned kindly at the start, I'm trying to do my bit as well. So my next children's novel, Meg, Mog and Gog the Dog, features a family which begins to dream the stories of Britain with dramatic consequences for their everyday lives. Meg, the main character, starts to have these weird dreams that she can't understand when they move to their new house in the centre of Britain. And gradually, as she dreams more, more of the family get involved, get caught up in the dreams, and she starts to understand some of the stories that have been lost before. And then the, the plot develops, but obviously I can't tell you exactly what happens. <laughs> so what I thought I'd do this morning is, um, after some music that um, Elizabeth, I think, I think, will give us now, I'd move on to some of the stories themselves. Um, just tell some of the, the stories, maybe some of the less familiar ones, as well as some aspects of the more familiar ones and use that as an introduction because today can only really be an introduction there's so many stories of britain so many different types of stories of britain that really they can last us a lifetime thank you so much roy what an absolutely fascinating introduction <laughs>
This is Radio Maria and Just Life, and we're joined this morning by Roy Peachy, author of uh, many books, and he's telling us about the stories of Britain and from the very well-known I Vow to Thee in My Country. He's going to tell us now about the, the, less, the lesser-known stories. So thank you, Roy, and back over to you. Thank you, Elizabeth. So I thought I'd start with Britain itself. Why is it called Britain? And the answer, according to Geoffrey of Monmouth, is because it was named after Brutus, the great-grandson of Aeneas, who escaped from the disaster at Troy and then founded Rome. Aeneas's heroic deeds are recorded in the Aeneid, the, the founding epic of ancient Rome, the greatest work of Latin literature there is. But his great-grandson seemed to struggle in his shadow. So according to the stories, and of course this is a story, this isn't historically true, according to the stories, there was a series of disasters in Italy, and then Brutus and his companions headed off to the edge of the world in their boat, picking up a few helpers on the way. I'll tell you about one of them in a minute, a man called Corineus. And eventually, when they feared that they'd come to the very edge of the world, they saw land ahead, a land infested by giants. Now, these giants are very interesting. Just outside Cambridge, where we're broadcasting from today, you can see the Gog Magog Hills. Gog and Magog, two separate names. But Geoffrey of Monmouth merged them into one. Gog Magog was the leader of the giants, he said, the leader of the giants on this new land. He was a fearful adversary who had no desire to allow these upstart Trojans to take over his island. And the fighting went on for years until eventually most of the giants were wiped out. Finally, Corineus, who now ruled Cornwall for Brutus, tracked Gog Magog down and the final battle began. It lasted for hours and seemed to be going the giant's way. He picked up Corineus and cracked three of his ribs. But this enraged Corineus so much that he fought back, hauling the giant onto his back and then hurling him into the sea. The giants had been defeated. Gog Magog was no more. Albion, this land which they had discovered, was now renamed Britain after Brutus. And Brutus set up his capital city, Trinovantum, New Troy, the place we now know as London. And what I find interesting about that story of the mythic origins of Britain is not just that it's a stirring story, a patriotic story, but it's also a story that gives our national story an international context. The founder of Britain isn't from Britain. He's from Italy and he's a descendant of the Trojans. But of course, for, for later writers, and even for Geoffrey of Monmouth himself, the context of the British story wasn't simply classical. It didn't just derive from ancient, ancient Rome. It also was Christian. And so later, later writers told how Joseph of Arimathea brought the Holy Grail to Glastonbury, where 
it mysteriously disappeared. But years later, one of Joseph's descendants, Igraine, gave birth to a, a baby boy, a boy called Arthur, who later became King Arthur. And Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table took part in many quests, but the greatest, the greatest of them all was the quest for the Holy Grail, a story of Britain that is told most movingly by a Frenchman, Chrétien de Troyes. Now, I won't dwell on the Arthurian tales today because they are still widely known, though perhaps not as widely as we might like. Instead, I thought I'd take you to Sherwood Forest and one of the earliest surviving tales of the outlaw, Robin Hood and the Monk. And this is a really intriguing story. It's a story I write about a little in one of my other books, 50 Books for Life. And it begins with Robin longing to attend Mass, which is not usually how we think of Robin Hood. And, and the poem goes like this. It is a fortnight and more, said he, since I my saviour see. Today will I to Nottingham, said Robin, with the might of mild Mary. Or Mary. Now, attending Mass in Nottingham when you're, out, uh, when you're an outlaw was, was clearly a risky business. But ignoring the advice of much the miller's son to take 12 outlaws with him, Robin set out with only little John for company. Unfortunately, on the way, the two of them quarrelled, leaving Robin to continue on his own. Knowing the risk, he prayed for protection and went to church anyway. But there he was spotted and betrayed to the Sheriff of Nottingham by an avaricious monk who just wanted money the reward money. So the news that Robin had been thrown into prison prompted Little John to forget his anger, to forget the quarrel, and together with Much the Miller's son, he ambushed the monk while he was on his way to London, and taking the monk's place, he delivered the Sheriff of Nottingham's letters to the king himself, explaining the original monk's absence by saying that he had died on the way. And then in this great comic twist to the story, he returns to Nottingham with a letter from the king that commanded the sheriff to hand Robin over. And this time he explains the monk's absence by saying that the king was so pleased with him that he, and I quote, has made him abbot of Westminster. He then set about drinking the sheriff's finest wine before freeing Robin during the night and bringing him back in triumph to Sherwood Forest. And so the tale ends with right restored, true religion confirmed, and Eden remembered because the outlaws finished the story enjoying a feast under the trees, back close to the soil, back to Britain itself, the, the earth of Britain. So we, we've got these two great national stories, these two great epics really, the Arthurian tales, which really are our chief national epic. But I think the stories of Robin Hood run them close as foundational stories of Britain. But what about our modern stories? What are the stories of, of modern Britain? Because stories develop and change over time. And there are many stories we, we might want to consider here. 
from the heroic deeds of Grace Darling, for example, to the Battle of Britain, which is now as much story as history. But I want to mention one that you've already briefly mentioned, a story that's still actually only half known, the story of Eric Liddell. And Eric Liddell was a Scotsman who was born in China. He was a man who played rugby for Scotland and won gold for Great Britain in the Olympics. He was a sprinter who refused to compete in the event he trained for because the heats were run on a Sunday. And we tend to know the story now because of Chariots of Fire, this great Oscar-winning movie. And we shall hear a lot more about it in two years' time because the Olympics are returning to Paris a hundred years after Liddell's unexpected triumph in 1924. But what happened next? What happened after the Olympics? That's the story I, I wanted to tell in The Race, my, my first children's novel. Eric Liddell could have made a lot of money from his Olympic success, but instead he went back to war-torn China as a missionary. He worked first in a school, then in a hospital, while warlords and Japanese invaders were fighting around him. He saved at least one wounded soldier from certain death, great personal risk to himself, and then Pearl Harbor was attacked, and Eric was interned, along with many other Brits and Americans and other nationalities. So his last race, his greatest race, took place not in an Olympic stadium, but in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in rural China. He competed in a sports day because he loved the children in the camp and wanted to keep their spirits up. He ran even though he was desperately ill. He ran his final race and shortly afterwards he died of a brain tumour far from home. But it strikes me that this story about a man who is claimed by China, rightly claimed by China in many ways as their first Olympic gold medalist, but also a proud Scotsman who ran for Great Britain, it seems to me that that's as much part of our national story as are the books of Geoffrey of Monmouth or Sir Thomas Mallory. Our, our national stories were always international stories. It's just that maybe we're now more aware of that fact. Now, I, I could keep going, but maybe that's enough stories for now. Maybe we need um, a little more music. Perfect. And then I can either carry on or I'm very happy to take any questions. Wonderful. OK, let's open the phone lines. If anyone does have a comment or question now is the perfect moment to call in. The number is 01. 223-375-564-01-223-375-564. I'm sure Roy would absolutely love to hear from you. Let's listen to a bit of music.
You are listening to Just Life on Radio Maria and we're joined by Roy Peachy, who's been telling us about stories of Britain. Just a reminder of the phone number. If you have any comments or questions, please do call in. The phones are open. Roy would love to hear from you. The number is 01 223 375 564. If you've got a question about Britain, the history of Britain, about storytelling or perhaps even story writing, do please give us a ring. Um, Roy, you mentioned that the Battle of Britain was, you know, part history, part story. And you also mentioned King Arthur. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about him, because I'm also confused. Is it is it history? Is it story? Um, did he exist? Uh, what do you know? Well, it's a question that's been debated for a long time. I think we'd have to say that it's almost completely story, but it is possible that it's rooted in a, a historical moment. There's a there's a wonderful passage actually in that hideous strength, this this novel by C.S. Lewis for for adults, um, where two of the characters discuss whether the story of Arthur could possibly be true or not. And, and one of the characters says, look, it all seems to hold together. You can imagine a situation where you've got the Romans having pulled out, but a war leader who's been trained by the Romans, who's got that military discipline that comes from the Romans, but who is British by birth, trying to pull together a group of people who are British, Roman, to fight against the the Saxons, the invading Saxons, and for it almost to work. And and in this book, they, they talk about the, the very different groups you get within the court at Camelot. You get the mysterious figure of, of Merlin, this sort of druidic figure, who seems to be Christian and yet seems to be drawing on some sort of pagan past. You've got the, the very civilised knights and then you've got the the sort of darker side represented by Mordred and, and co so it, it's possible that there is a, a historical memory and and figures who are sometimes called Arthur or who seem to be Arthur are mentioned in some of the early uh, writing some of the early chronicles people like Nennius Gildas but it's all a little bit later and the story definitely grows in the telling so the, the stories we're very familiar with, especially the, the story of the round table itself and Camelot, that is very much inspired by later historical events. That's all coming out of the age of chivalry. Um, and much of it, as I said earlier, is really coming from France. The, the, the great Arthurian cycles are primarily French and then filter back into, into Britain. So... Let me give you an example of one story, one of my favourite Arthurian stories, which is clearly not historical, but it's still a great story. The story of Gawain and the Green Knight. And there's this, this wonderful moment when the, the court at Camelot are celebrating Christmas together. And suddenly in bursts this, this man, this strange, enormous green man on a green horse. And he throws down this challenge to the court. He says, anyone may strike me with their axe if a year and a day later, he's prepared to be struck himself at my green chapel. And so King Arthur says, well, that's a 
challenge I'm quite happy to take up. But as he's about to take up the challenge, Sir Garwain intervenes and he says, look, you know, this is too risky. I'm not sure about this. I'll do it instead. So Garwain takes the axe, walks over to this green giant and chops off his head. But what then happens is that the this green giant picks up his own head, walks back across the hall, gets on his horse and gallops off. So, of course, Sir Garwain's rather spooked by this. But he continues throughout the year. And then as the following Christmas arrives or is approaching, he sets off on this quest to find the green giant because he's he's sworn an oath. And this is important. He needs to fulfill what he said he'd do. And he's he's really struggling. He can't find the green giant anywhere. But eventually. He stumbles across this lonely given refuge and he's able to attend mass on Christmas Day. and while he's there, he's put to the test. Though he doesn't realise he's being put to the test at the time. He's tempted by the lady of the house while her husband's out hunting. But he resists and he, he goes off to this green chapel on the appointed day. And you get this wonderful description of, of British weather. And um, so the, the poet says, the snore snittered full snart, snart, the snow sleeted down sharply and mist mugged on the moor. So you've got this terrible weather and then he meets the green giant and he kneels down, presents his neck and thinks that's it. He's about to be beheaded by this giant. But the giant nicks him and then lets him go because he's passed the test. He's proved himself to be a virtuous knight. He's proved himself to be the sort of knight that should be um, a, a member of the round table at Camelot. So it's, it's a fantastic story. It's a story that clearly reaches back into myth, this idea of the green giant. It's not historical, but it's, it's very much part of that story of Britain. Can I tell a, an, another story? Please, yeah, I'm absolutely loving it because um, <laughs> I studied Gawain and the Green Knight at university, so it's taking oh, me back. And what a, wonderful, what a wonderful story it is. Please tell us more. Well, I'm thinking back to the, the Lord of the Rings. Now, Tolkien was a, a real fan of Sir Gawain and the, and the Green Knights. I and mean, there's an edition of Sir Gawain, um, which uh, Tolkien brought out and he, he wrote about the, the poem. And a lot of this old English literature and Middle English in literature found its way into the Lord of the Rings in particular. But there's, there's this one moment, one of my favourite moments in the Lord of the Rings, where... Sam, the, the trusty sidekick of Frodo, um, is just longing to meet an olifant. And an olifant is an ancestor of, the, of elephants. And we think, well, OK, what on earth has this got to do with the stories of Britain? You know, an elephant is about as far as you can get from, from Britain. And it, he, he says this simple but wonderful poem. He says, grey as a mouse, big as a house. Nose like a snake, I make the earth shake as I tramp through the grass. Trees crack as I pass. With horns in my mouth, I walk in the south, flapping big ears. Beyond count of years, I stump round and round, never lie on the ground, not even to die. Oliphant am I, biggest of all, huge, old and tall. If ever you'd met me, you wouldn't forget me. If you never do, you won't think I'm true. But old Oliphant am I, 
and I never lie. And then Sam says this, he says, that, that's a rhyme we have in the Shire. Nonsense, maybe, and maybe not. But we have our tales too, and news out of the South, you know. And so he, he, he's not quite sure, is this true? Is this just a legend? And he finishes by saying, but now I don't suppose I'll ever see an oliphant. Maybe there ain't no such a beast. And he sighed. But then just a few pages later, he hears this terrible noise when he's caught up in a great battle far from home. There's a, and I quote, a shrill bellowing or trumpeting, and then a great thudding and bumping like huge rams dinning on the ground. And then appearing over the hill comes an oliphant, this enormous beast greater than the, the elephants of the modern day. He's swerving towards them. He's enraged in the battle. He almost blunders straight through where Sam and Frodo are. And what Sam's response is not terror, it's awe. He's just amazed by this sight. Sam drew a deep breath, it says. An oliphant it was, he said. So there are oliphants, and I have seen one. What a life. So it's a wonderful moment, and you, you might think, well, you know, Tolkien's just made this up. But actually, the word oliphant first appears in English in a 12th century poem called Brute, the story of Brutus, uh, who I talked about earlier. And this poem, Brute, is also known as the Chronicle of Britain. So right from, you know, a thousand years ago, oliphants were part of the stories of Britain. And then elephants get drawn into the story as well. Uh, I, I love elephants and I've I've included them in Meg Mog and Gog the Dog, this new children's novel, partly because it provides great opportunity for comedy. But the story I heard when I was being taught history as an 11 year old was that elephants were part of the invasion of Britain. And that was that was part of the story. That was part of the history. So R.J. Unstead, who I mentioned earlier, wrote this in his The Story of Britain. In AD 43, an army of some 40,000 men under Aulus Plautius landed in Kent. Following Caesar's line of advance, it forced its way across the Medway and the Thames into the strongest part of the island. The emperor himself arrived to encourage his troops by his presence and dismay the Britons by the sight of his military elephants. Okay, there's no doubt yet there was elephants there. And then Robert Graves picks up on similar stories in Claudius the God, and he says... Uh, this is Claudius himself speaking, the Emperor Claudius speaking. Our cavalry and elephants were sent in the direction of Colchester to prevent fugitives from rallying on the road. They overtook Caractacus at Chelmsford, where he was trying to organise the defence of the river Chelmer. The sight of the elephants was enough to send the British scurrying in all directions. But actually, if we look at Roman historians like Suetonius and Tacitus, who wrote about the history of Britain and the invasion of Britain, they don't mention elephants at all. There are one or two little hints that maybe they were thinking about bringing elephants over from other historians, but there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever, strong historical evidence, that elephants were part of that invasion of Britain. But obviously, it makes a wonderful story. And so elephants and before them oliphants 
became part of that national story, those national stories. And that's what Tolkien picked up on in The Lord of the Rings. So you begin to see, I think that I think the image of the tapestry is the right one. There's this intermeshing of different stories, interweaving of different strands of the story that go to create a, you know, a marvellous bigger picture. Thank you, Roy. Um, that's absolutely fascinating. And perhaps someone does have a question. So I'm going to give out the phone number again. It's 01223 01-223-375-564. 01-223-375-564. It's actually some time since I read Lord of the Rings. Um, so it's all rather too too much of a foggy and hazy memory for me to ask any intelligent questions but perhaps someone out there has has read it more recently and uh has it has been um has a question so please do call now we've got time for one more music break about writing these stories where do you where and how do you do your research well i i read an awful lot i think if you're going to be a writer reading a lot helps so the the question i tend to get asked by children is where do you get your ideas from and and the truth of the matter is that that's the easy part so ideas just spill out really 
Um, sometimes you need a bit of space. So I find that um, the late evening dog walk is quite a good thinking time and some ideas come then. But it's all built on a, a foundation of, of lots of, of reading. Uh, when do I do it? Well, it, it's tricky because, you know, I'm a teacher, as you mentioned at the start, and I, I have a family. So what I've found over the years is that actually just grabbing moments here and there is what makes the big difference. I used to think that if I had a writing shed in the garden, the perfect writing shed, then I would be able to churn out, you know, blockbusting Booker Prize winning novels one after another. And of course, it, it's just not like that. In fact, I did when I was living in Cambridge, I did have a wonderful writing shed in the back garden, but I just couldn't ever get out there. So what I found now is grabbing 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, sometimes getting up early and writing is the, is the way forward. Thank you. That's incredibly useful advice for anyone trying to achieve anything, uh, because I think we often feel if we had, you know, the the perfect shed things would get done <laughs> but in fact we have to um we have to carve the time out of out of what we have um and so when when will these stories of britain be published this meg mog and gog the dog book can you tell us who it's published by and when it's coming out and where we can find it yes yeah, so it's going to be published by isaiah books which is a wonderful little press run by madeline carroll whom some of your listeners may know and uh, she's got some some wonderful books for younger children on there. So do have a look at her website, Isaiah Books. Um, but she also has started to expand a little. So um, she brought out my my latest book, A Little Book of British Saints, which is in fact quite a big book. <laughs> um, and so the, the children's novel is going to come out uh, through that press. I, we haven't got a date yet, um, partly because we're still working on the illustrations. Um, but the, the book is, is written, it's, it's ready to go. So hopefully it won't be too long before that hits the, hits the shelves. Brilliant. And Roy has a fantastic website. And if you just look up Roy Peachy, you'll, you'll find it and you'll find all his books and a little bit more about him. And he's going to be back on Radio Maria on uh, Tuesday the 4th of October uh, in the evening credo slot talking about Tolkien um, and again, in five weeks time on Just Life, talking about home education. And we hope you'll also find time to come and talk about the Little Saints. Um, it's been absolutely a pleasure and fascinating to be with you this morning. So thank you so much, Rory. Thank you ever so much for inviting me. It's, uh, it's great fun. Yeah, thank you. And we, we very much look forward to hearing from you very, very soon. Thank have, you. have a lovely day. And you, Elizabeth.